0: <laughs> Mr. Mistrattle.
1: She's <laughs> a great. She's a great. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, let's go back overseas. We've been talking a lot of Russia, a lot of what's going on in Russia and Ukraine and that part of the world, uh, turning to another one of our Young Voices partnerships, uh, Cassandra Shand. Uh, she has an impressive resume. Uh, she has been writing all over the place about different things. Uh, she studies foreign policy. Uh, she studied it at Cambridge. She liked it so much. She's now studying it even more over at the University of Chicago. She's a UCLA grad. How are you, my friend?
0: I'm doing good. Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
1: And me proudly representing the Summersville Extension of Glenville State College Community College. Uh, We'll try to keep up with you as best I can, as long as you promise to use small words and talk slowly. (laughs) Um, let's, Let's back up, because we have a habit, especially an American audience, especially American media. We just jump on international things when it pops on our radar and we lose the context of it. So let, let's do a little background here. Russia's uh, on the borders of Ukraine on four sides surrounding them. That didn't happen in a vacuum. That happened in a sequence. So let's back up a little bit. Where do you think this crisis really started? We know Putin's a thug dictator and a bad actor and all this stuff. Where did this really start? Because we know about Crimea getting invaded in 2013. We know Belarus coming into the fold a few years ago. There's a lot of moving pieces that added up to this. We know the oil and gas part of it. Where do you think the genesis of this really is at?
0: Um, yeah, so I think I mean a lot of experts might point to I mean the Crimean invasion itself. Um, I think in the past few years, one of the big things uh, has been the Nord Stream two pipeline. I think that kind of uh, the current administration's um, like kind of like tacit acceptance. Of the pipeline's creation. Um, all while, while sanctions are still in place. That's kind of created a pathway for Russia to say, Well, okay, um, yeah, we're going to go for it. So I think that's kind of what's, um, kind of really rehashed Russia's interest in Ukraine.
1: Yeah. And one thing we're always talking about is uh, geopolitics. You always want to start by just looking at the map. Uh, you mm-hmm. can usually get a lot of your answers that way beyond all the politics of it. Ukraine is, uh, the USSR always called it the breadbasket. It's a natural resource rich area oil and gas if you look at the map all the pipelines if you're going to get gas and stuff into uh europe have to go through the ukraine and with nordstrom 2 it bypasses that and go into germany and that's why that became such a big deal
0: going through ukraine right ukraine right now is the only is kind of the only i'd say like the only real safeguard uh, ukraine has from like for the open season for your uh, russia russian aggression So um, I think that's why a lot of Ukrainians, uh, the Ukrainian government was so upset um, at Nord Stream 2. And I think that um, the West, while very vocal, was not vocal enough in the past year and a half or so. Um, I think that's why we've seen a lot of movement since at least spring of 2021.
1: Especially when we go back to some even more uh, past history. At the end of the USSR, when Ukraine became independent, they had... Uh, nuclear weapons from the ussr that was there there was a lot of military bases obviously the black sea bases that are now back in russian control because of the crimean peninsula the promise was they were going to give up their nukes and the west especially nato especially western power especially america we would protect them if russia ever came calling here we are 30 odd years later here we are and that dynamic has played out very differently has not it
0: absolutely we also have the 94 budapest memorandum where uh the U.S., U.K., and Russia, um, all three of us agreed on on the Ukraine's borders. We, we agreed on UK, the Ukraine's sovereignty. Um, and here we are. So um, a few lines have been crossed for sure.
1: Now, crossing lines, when, when we're talking about international policy, there's a big historical component. Historically speaking, when you have a, a person like Vladimir Putin, who has absolute power, who has ambitions, uh, they tend to work off learned behavior. And we have learned behavior here because he didn't get his hand smacked for 2013 in Crimea. He hasn't got his hand smacked in a meaningful way for targeting journalists and dissidents with uh, the, the poisoning and this sort of thing. How big of a piece of this puzzle when we try to understand what's going on in Ukraine is the fact that I don't think Vladimir Putin really fears any kind of international pressure right now, other than maybe some monetary stuff.
0: Oh, I 100% agree with that. I think, and, and, and to be fair, I don't think like the monetary stuff is anything to be taken lightly. I think if done properly, that would very much cripple Russia. I do think something new, though, uh, since 2013 is kind of a, a resurgence of Chinese interest in Ukraine. I think that, that is new in itself. And I think that. Russia and China relations, they're a little tenuous and they have been for a while. So I think that that's definitely a change we've seen since 2013, uh, 2014, at least. Um, and an area that I think Russia is a little apprehensive about. Talk about that France yeah, as well.
1: Yeah, and talk about that because I don't think people realize, because we don't pay attention in the, especially mm-hmm. American media, very much about these things. China's things like their Belt and Road Initiative, like their expansions, uh, the way they're using predatory lending in places like Africa. I know you've written about that before. We'll maybe get into that some other time. They're expanding. So when Putin's just looking at a map, he's like, well, wait a minute, you're expanding. But now you're getting into my backyard because he sees the Ukraine. He still has that imperial uh, mindset as an old KBG guy's like, no, wait a minute, that's mine. And there's a big element of that here too, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I, I think very much. There's a clear parallel parallel between like Russia's interest in Ukraine and China's interest in Taiwan. I think they they both view both regions um, as kind of like their their homeland, um, their brethren in some uh, in some aspect. China and Russia both have very imperialistic ambitions. I think that China is in a stronger position currently. Um, I, I don't I personally wouldn't necessarily attribute superpower status to Russia so much as it as I would have maybe about the USSR. Um So right now I think they both have very similar goals in mind. I think China does. China has a lot of investments in Ukraine. A lot of or China is the Ukraine's largest trading partner. It's a uh, they're heavily tied. Um, Russia is aware of this, um, and, and they can't. They're kind of walking this fine line of being like, okay, great. We kind of have Russia or China on our side with a uh, supporting us with the with. Crimea, but also China wants to be more invested in Ukraine and on us. So it's it's this kind of re- weird uh, tug of war that I, I think uh, really puts Russia in an uncomfortable in an, an uncomfortable position. And so I think, um, so I think areas where uh, we can kind of increase Ukraine's security, I think hitting Russia and China at each other with the Ukraine issue that's in America's best interest, which is why I think. Ukrainian sovereignty is incredibly important. As long as Ukraine exists, there's a point of hostility, clear hostility between uh, Russia and China, which plays out in America's favor.
1: How much of this is economic? Because we know the territorial man. We know the we know the prestige. We know that Putin really wants that reunited USSR because he feels like it was robbed from him. This is just a lot of economics. So, like you said, the thing that really differentiates Russia and China is we kind of talk about russia's military being a paper tiger it's not that their military is incapable it's that economically their military is disproportionate to what their economy can handle when he's looking at the Ukraine, we already talked about it being the breadbasket of the USSR. This is a huge economic piece. If Russia is going to expand influence, they just have to have those economic models. And that's where you start bumping into China because they're already in there trying to get that same amount, that same piece of real estate, for lack of a better term.
0: Yeah, um, I think I, I think it's pretty like self-explanatory. There's only a finite amount of resources. You can't have two dominant actors after the same the same goal without having a little bit of strife so yeah i think that's the area where a lot can happen between the Re- russia and china as far as their strategic partnership goes um and i think ukraine is in the unfortunate position where they just are being kind of fought over and so i think that's definitely underlying aspect uh, uh kind of a hidden issue we have in ukraine today that is not really discussed at all i think that there's a big focus on nato and russia and ukraine and and china is just kind of there biding time but I think if provoked, I'm not really sure what China will do. I'm not sure. I'm not really sure what will happen behind the scenes with Russia and China. But um, I think they are definitely uh, partners of convenience. And I think if maybe Russia was a uh, over on our side of the world, it could be a different story. Is
1: it is it one of those things where enemy of my enemy and friend of my friend thing? But is it just inevitable because they're both so? Uh, Ambitious. They both have such nationalistic goals of expanding their spheres of influence. Is it just inevitable that at some point, as long as Putin's in charge, as long as Xi Jinping's in charge, at at some point, you can't you can't have those two alphas in the same room. At some point, they're going to want to test each other, aren't they?
0: Yeah, I think another uh, another factor at play is uh, China has a very clear historical conscience. I think that they had a they call it the century of humiliation. Russia did very, I mean, for a short period of time, take advantage of uh, kind of China's insecurity. It was being exploited by multiple Western powers and uh, Russia took uh, hundreds of miles of land from China, eventually give it back. But um, that's just something you definitely still see in Chinese history. It's a, a very clear, like Russia took this from us. Yes. They, we adopted communism and we kind of um, became closer to line with Russia, but there's still this kind of like deep seated, like anger towards Past treatment. And so I think that's definitely like an aspect that's kind of in the back of a lot of um, Chinese policymakers' minds. I also think that, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. The economic and the strategic kind of adversarial interests um, are definitely playing a role in how both countries are kind of positioning t- towards each other. Um, with the US being the ultimate, like, we don't like the US, um, kind of their shared common denominator there but without the u.s i mean i, I can't <laughs> i i think they'd be pretty would be pretty adversarial for sure
1: more russia more ukraine how china plays into that and we're going to get a little bit into the wider world how europe and america is going to react to all that all that right after this when we come back on her tip Welcome back to Hertel. We're talking to Cassandra Shand, uh, Young Voices contributor, uh, Cambridge graduate, uh, University of Chicago student, because you're a glutton for punishment and want even more learning, talking a little bit foreign policy. All right, Russia and Ukraine. I just cannot overlook the fact here, and the Western media hasn't been talking about this, one. I don't think it's accidental that this is all happening right after Angela Merkel leaves the scene. She was kind of the one person in Germany that, that kind of had Putin's number, would push back on him, not, not in ways that the West probably liked but they didn't like each other. Uh, She spoke fluent Russian. She could at least hold her own on the national stage. Uh, No offense to Olaf Scholz, but, you know, he has the personality of a beige hallway in a government building somewhere. Uh, I don't think any of this is accidental. The timing that he's pushing the limits with a new president and president Biden, who he knows very, very well, a new chancellor in Germany, which is probably our most important ally in Europe. We've already talked about the China connection. There's a lot of confluence here of things that Putin's going, now's my moment to move, isn't it?
0: Oh, absolutely. I think the timing could not be better for Russia. Two of the major players in the world, new leadership, uh, mixing it up a little bit. Both the U.S. and Germany, they're kind of figuring out their foreign policy again and like rehashing, especially, the, the, again, the pipeline we discussed before. Um It's huge for um, for Russia. And so, yeah, new leadership in Germany. Absolutely. Major factor in um, this renewed Russian aggression
1: is NATO the way it's always been. It seems like we've just left NATO mostly how it's been for the last 30 some years since the wall came down. Is NATO really properly aligned to deal with a Russia as it exists now, which is no longer the Soviet Union? It's now this. Kind of, It's a state. It's a sovereign state, but it's also ran by Oliarchs. It's ran by a dictator in Putin who represents those Oliarchs. It's ran, quite frankly, kind of more like a criminal enterprise than a state at some point.
0: Mm. It
1: doesn't seem like NATO is really the proper alignment and or organization in its current state to really deal with issues like this, is
0: it? In theory, NATO is the best prepared to deal with uh, this kind of thing without... The U.S. directly um, managing itself. I mean, I, I think uh, the U.S. I think can't manage this in its entirety by itself. I think NATO is a good way of kind of walking the middle line, the middle line of being involved in this conflict, but also not being like di- the direct uh, main player um, with Russia. So um, I think this time around, well, like NATO hasn't really changed much, but I think that Ukraine has changed a lot more. I think that. Um, now, a lot of the Ukrainian um, the military, the military is now they have wartime experience. They've been kind of like in a wartime mindset for the past eight years now, while NATO is kind of doing the same same kind of training they've done before, maybe just advancing a little more the confluence of both of those factors kind of positions, NATO and, the, and Ukraine in a like I'd say better positions than this time around for sure.
1: Talk about, cause you study foreign policy and you study um, international policy with somebody like Putin, um, saving face perceptions, especially we talked about the economy of Russia is not what it's cracked up to be. He tries to build up the military to kind of compensate for that. A lot of his moves are to try to save face. Is that one of the things that's kind of staying his hand here? Like no matter how bad he wants to invade the Ukraine Is that maybe the biggest thing is going, like, he knows, like, I go in there. I don't think I can hold it. uh, I'm going to have international pressure. Is it the saving face of what if the Ukrainians blunt us? Is that kind of the only thing kind of holding him here? I
0: I think it it could kind of be perceived as both. I think um, to some degree, this could be just a Russian form of brinksmanship where, okay, like, yeah, we're going to threaten to uh, invade Ukraine uh, and then, you know, give a whole shopping list of demands like, oh, we don't want any NATO pressure. We don't want any... uh, No new NATO encroachment uh, towards the east, like, you know, stay in the west. Um, That could just could just be a way of Putin saying, hey, like, get out of my backyard. And and yeah, I think that it it probably is a reasonable fear in Putin's mind that, yes, if they do invade Ukraine and uh, Russia is in Ukraine, like, can it realistically keep control over the area? I I don't think so. I think that um, for the most part, um, the average Ukrainian is, is. by far pro-West. Um, that's the reason why we've seen such a transition of power in Ukraine of, since 1991. Um, and yeah, I think uh, Putin is aware of this fact. Um, and uh, I think we'll see what what he decides to do. But uh, I think uh, he, the odds are against him for sure.
1: Now, the brinksmanship line is exactly the one that the Ukraine has come out with the last couple of days of President Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. This is kind of the tone he's taking of don't stop talking so much. In fact, it be kind of made some headlines here. Uh, the meeting with him and President Biden, depending on which reports, you did not go particularly well. And he came out of that meeting in uh, European press saying, quit talking about an imminent d- invasion. This doesn't help an invasion is not a foregone conclusion that seems to be the line he's taking here is that him saving face or do they really believe that hey we we can maybe weather this out if we just let it go for a little while longer
0: um to, to be quite frank i'm not really sure i think that i mean historically just troop movements they or i guess like um off training scheduled troop movements have been um heavily overlapped with brinksmanship Um, So if this really is just like a repositioning of troops and they don't invade, yeah, it's brinksmanship. But I mean, I think the real tell here is whether or not um, Russia decides to go, you know, cross the border. And um, I I do think, I guess, that one other factor is Belarus. I think that uh, considering uh, Lukashenko is a lot more pro-Russia, it makes the brinksmanship argument all kind of more fragile. But um, uh, yeah, I think Zelensky is probably uh, more on the nose here with uh russia kind of
1: see the belarus thing i think is the one that people aren't really because it wasn't that long ago this is only a couple of years ago Luchenko basically stole an election uh everybody outside of his circle and the backers and and the kremlin said he stole this election this is one of those things when you're trying to explain foreign policy to people that certain things matter That one really mattered because now he's a wholly owned subsidiary of Putin. And if Putin wants to drive on Kiev again, geopolitics starts with a map. All you got to do is look at look at Belarus. He can drive straight down into Kiev from the north now instead of the heavily fortified eastern border. That's one of those things that really, really mattered. And they just didn't we didn't do a lot of supporting of something that everybody admitted was clearly wrong there.
0: Oh, yeah, no, I agree. I think. uh... No conflict in foreign policy; it's isolated. Everything is related, especially when you have such uh, closely drawn borders of post-Soviet states. It definitely irks Putin on a, I think, like a on a personal level that um, you have Ukraine with all these pro-democratic sentiments. I think he really wants to go back to Yanukovych era. I uh, was like the pre, like pre-2014 Ukrainian president, um, very pro-Russia, and I think it, it really kind of uh, frustrates him that the Ukrainian people have, like, so far. Heavily, heavily rebuked, um, Russian influence, and I think yeah, um, he in a ideal world he obviously would want a uh, Ukraine that kind operates like a uh, Lukashenko run Belarus.
1: Yeah, the old Soviet Union in a lot of other words without the pretense oh, of the communism. What's your read on Putin? He's getting up there in age. Uh, he's president for life. We he, he's figured that out, so he's never going to leave power until he dies or he gets overthrown. The former is probably going to happen before the latter. What What's your read on him? Because when you look at the economic situation, you look at the military situation, you look at China, even with a very distracted U.S., is it fair to say that Russia's kind of bumping up against the, the limits of its expansion of how much influence and, and expansion it can have here? This, this seems like a, almost a tipping point with the current state of Russia of I don't think they can go much further in world uh, influence than what they're going here. And this may very well be the point where if Putin doesn't handle this right, he could really lose a lot of face and start to lose internal control as well, couldn't he?
0: Oh yeah, I absolutely agree. I think um, there's a reason why the U.S. is pivoting towards Asia, and I also think that like uh, a a uh, democratic Ukraine is kind of in Putin's favor. He can play this really uh, okay. I really don't want the U.S. Uh, the evil U.S. whatever. But in reality, like if he focuses on the Ukraine as like the as a a real moral impetus for. Um, Russian aggression, I guess. Yeah, he uh, he kind of appeases his base. I mean, like, yeah, Russia is strong. It's a prioritizing first. It's a uh, more broadly that I, I think Putin is um, a little concerned about the state of his domestic affairs um, and his um, capacity for international dominance, um, which is why I think the U.S. has quite handily pivoted towards Russia with the uh, exception of NATO influence in europe i think that putin in many ways like it could be kind of like a falklands thing for putin it's like okay great like this is our this is our sustained conflict um this is really important for us um and you can kind of increase domestic uh create more positive domestic sentiment that way And i think for the u.s this actually works out very well i think we want a free we want to keep a free um ukraine for as long as possible because as long as ukraine is there putin is more frustrated with the fact that Ukraine is free, then the U.S. is just sitting over here and dominating. I think that's his priority is Ukraine, then U.S. And I think um, the longer that Ukraine is free, the more Putin is going to try to flex his muscle around Ukraine to the benefit of the U.S.
1: Does Putin climb down from this or does he invade, do you think?
0: I don't think it's it's in his direct influ- interest to invade currently. I think that um, he needs to sort out a lot of different factors in the present. I think that the pipeline itself, I think the fact that it's kind of Almost complete. It's very close. Um, that that goes to show that I mean, Russia is already kind of exceeding, uh, I think, American expectations at um, Russian success, even with sanctions. Um, so I think that I mean, he's positioning himself very nicely um, to kind of make Ukraine um, as as far as like a resource less important. And so I think he's kind of increasing the opportunity. I think uh, Russia's. I, I think the window for invasion is. Further down the road, I think that um, right now, the focus on the pipeline getting at complete, kind of showing the rest of the world like, oh, look how cool we are. We've got these sanctions, but succeeded. That sh- would make more sense as like being like a better move for Putin to make and then invade it down the long term. I think this... Most likely is a, a instance of brinksmanship.
1: Let me put it this way I hope you're right. I hope it's a brinksmanship thing. I kind of embody the fact that he's held this long because usually, if you're going to invade, you invade. You don't invade, go to the stop line and then make sure everybody sees you're getting ready to invade and then invade. Mm-hmm. That would be a exactly. weird way to do it. I know some people are talking about the winter weather over there, but I, that's Russians are used to winter. I don't think that's the issue at hand. So I hope you're right that it is a brinksmanship thing. We're definitely going to be talking about it a lot in the coming weeks and months. I'm sure this is not going away. Like you said, I think he sees this as one of his uh, continuing conflict type things. Cassandra Shand, thank you so much for the time today. Let folks know where you're writing and what you're doing and how they can follow you on social media and elsewhere.
0: Yeah, of course. You're going to follow me on Twitter at, at Cassandra Shand um, yeah, I post whatever I do there. So thank you so much.
1: Appreciate your time. We'll definitely have you back to update the story. Cause I don't think it's going to go away.
0: Happy to do so. Thank you so much.
1: And uh, happy birthday who celebrated a birthday a day or two ago. So happy birthday.
0: Thank you so much. Aya. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Talk to you Hold soon. In. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you.
1: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop.